Welcome to Change Making Women, the podcast for women who make a difference. With Ziada Bade in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Marianne Clements in London, in the UK. Hi, and welcome back to Change Making Women and to our series, which is interviewing um, women who are making a difference in the world in the context of the pandemic of COVID 19. I'm here, I'm Marianne Clements, I'm in London, as usual, I'm here with Ziada. Hiya, yeah, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, how have you been? Yeah, not bad, still in the house, but I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Good, good, I think now it's becoming, it's becoming the, the, the normal, so we don't have a choice but to somehow uh, find a way to enjoy this time. And right creative about it <laughs> absolutely and so we're really excited today to be here with Esther Goldsmith who's a dear friend of mine um so Esther's recently published an amazing memoir called the space between black and white and that's what we're going to be talking about this evening but before we get to that um I want to tell you that Esther is also a feminist activist she's um uh, been many years in the women in women's rights work and feminist activism in the UK and around the world and particularly in international development spaces. She is an inspirational speaker. She is uh, someone who works with organisations on strategy and organisational development and coaches other women. Um, and I'm going to introduce you to her now so she can tell you a bit about herself also. So welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much, Said, and uh, also to you, Mary Ann, for that introduction. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to follow that. I'll just say I'd like to meet this woman you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I think that kind of gives a, a, a little snapshot of them, the things that I've uh, been doing over the years and my deep commitment and interest to feminist uh, development and uh, in the form of solidarity and uh, reparations and building a, a movement, a global movement uh, that can introduce change and work for change. So I guess I'd see myself as an activist and writing a memoir has been a big journey for me. It's a, it's a, it's a change of career late in life, but I've really enjoyed telling the story and it's as much a personal story as it is a, a chronicle of our times very personal very um experiential i didn't want to write anything theoretical i wanted it you know in the present tense this is me as a child and or, or as an uh, a teenager or, or as an adult and this is what i'm seeing particularly through the eyes of somebody who like myself who identifies as mixed race because i don't think that story has been told in the kind of depth that i'm trying to go into it and i think it speaks to everybody every reader about uh, the about about your own identity and your own motivations so that's kind of two halves of me the writer and the activist brought together really right yeah and uh, and i think we'll we are delve deeper into the theme and uh, the themes of the book including you know the, the, the story is all really about 
seeing mixed race, right? But um, it'd be mm. lovely just to hear from you a little bit from the book before we, before we dig deeper. Yeah, I'd love to read a piece. And I thought I'd, I'd chosen something right from the beginning because I wanted to introduce uh, the concept of onlyness because not only was I mixed race, but also I was the only uh, black child on the block, the only black kid on the block in my um, community. So I was totally confused and bewildered about my identity. I got lots of racism. I got, uh, I felt like I was an alien dropped from outer space. I never knew my father. I was in a white world and I felt very much like an only one. And it was a long, long time before I actually was able to connect with other people who are like myself. Um, so I just wanted to read for you something that happened to me when I was four years old on uh, Clapham Common, which is a large green space in the middle of South London. It's November, it's a foggy afternoon, it's around about half past four or five o'clock. So any of you who are familiar with the UK will know that in November, it's very, um, it's beginning to get dark at that time and it's very cold and often very damp. So here I am as a four-year-old with my auntie. I've just been playing on the swings and I'm on my way home. In the foggy half light, I can just about make out a family group moving slowly across the grass ahead of us. As we get nearer, I can see they are wearing the strangest clothes, long robes and trousers, glimpses of red, gold and blue, with short jackets, scarves and hats to keep out the late autumn chill. The woman is wearing a green and gold scarf around her head, like a turban. They stand out in the fast fading light, like a flock of brightly coloured birds. The smallest bird breaks away from the group and runs towards me. A little girl, about four years old, the same age as me. She has dark skin and black fuzzy hair like mine. We stop and stare at each other, spellbound, rooted to the spot, a sudden shock of connection, of recognition. I know you. Kumba, Kumba. I think it was Kumba they called her. Something like that. Kumba ran off to join her family and they moved off across the common out of sight. It all happened so quickly. I can't quite believe what I've just seen. I try to run after her, but Auntie Belinda holds me back. We have to go home now, she coaxes. Your mum will be back from work soon. It's getting dark and Nan will have tea ready. Tea time. It always interrupts something really important, just at the wrong moment. I have stumbled on a secret. I'm not the only one. I'm not alone in the world. There are others. And more than that, colored people come in whole families. Mom, dad, and two children. Not just one-offs like me. I feel strange. Excited, scared, shocked, all at the same time, but also comforted. Oh, wow. I have to say, I wanted you to continue. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> good yeah, yeah, sign. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. 
I can't wait for the audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, why was it so important for you to explore the experience of being mixed race uh, through the book? Well, I guess that's one of those um, transformational moments for me, that um, shock of recognition about my difference and what it meant. And the fact that there was a whole world out there of people who looked like me uh, that I wasn't in contact with. And so it underlined my onlyness, but also started off this longing in me. I think it started with confusion. And by the age of four and a half, I also had to add longing, the longing to be part of that, that community and have those connections. And I think um, that's, that's been with me through my life and that, that kind of quest to, uh, to find my community, find my uh, solidarity, find my spirit and connection with others. So I guess that has motivated me to become part of transformational movements because of the, the personal need to express that in myself. And um, there are other parts of the book where I show how that translates into a longing for equality, anti-racism, egalitarianism, um, uh, a feeling of transforming society as well as my sense of connection. So those two things go in parallel. And I guess the mixed race thing is, is about um, feeling that the society as we have it today, you know, the patriarchal society and the drivers for that in the Western world, you know, sort of the white male norm and everybody else's other, uh, leads to um, a feeling that you, you, uh, people are trying to put you in boxes, uh, black or white or gay or straight or, you know, male or female, uh, whatever it is. Whereas we know that in life, people have multiple identities and we are multi-layered and multi-faceted as human beings. We're much richer than that. We're much richer than either or. And that kind of polarity um, is a power thing, really. It's about saying, let's put people in boxes, either or, and then we can say one of them is powerful and the other isn't. So I feel that Exploring mixed race leads us down a very rich and exciting path of intersectionality where there are all sorts of places and spaces we can go into. And uh, talking to other mixed race people much, much later in my life, only in the last few years, and of course, they're all a lot younger than me because um, when I was being, growing up, when I was a four-year-old, that scene was set in 1958 in the UK. So there was only about, what, something like 20,000 black people in Britain. So just imagine being mixed race was completely unheard of, really. There was very few of us. So it seems to me that this is about the story of mixed race, the history of mixed race, that we've always been told there isn't enough to connect us uh, when we're a little bit white and a little bit black and neither one thing nor the other. Um, and it's that search for authenticity to say, I'm mixed race and that's really important. My black identity is a mixed race identity and it's about authenticity and it's about saying we are the real deal and we can go into spaces that other people can't because of belonging in two places and having two, two or more sorts of perspective 
it's challenging, it's complicated, but it's really exciting. Thanks, Esther. I think um, I, I'm lucky enough to have read the book already, and I think um, it really, you know, you, you, re you really tell such a powerful story that really brings that theme to life in the book, I think, um, and really helps anyone who's reading it to understand it and I'm sure you know I, I read it as obviously as a white woman and um you know there's resonance for me in it on one level and in another level I don't have that experience of being mixed race um and growing up in that way so I learned a lot as well and I think there's something for everyone to learn from that and at the same time there's something really powerful and unique about it too so thank you so much for sharing your story and I really hope people will We'll read it because it's also a really good read. Um, I wanted to ask you what you hope the impact of your book will be. Well, I think we're going through a really difficult time at the moment. The world is in turmoil. And uh, interestingly enough, I wrote it, literally finished it the year before COVID. And I was writing in a context of um, crisis. We forget all the other crises that came before COVID. We had the crisis of um, the aid sector and the um, uh, abuse and uh, exploitation of women um, and the lack of visibility of women in leadership positions in the aid sector. Um, uh, just around about the time that I finished, uh, at the book and at the same time there was of course the environmental crisis that the world was uh, headed for disaster and there were lots of young women who were at the vanguard of the environmental movements and still are that were arguing that you know the world was running out of time so it's really interesting that I was writing at that time and in my foreword I talk about the fact that it's really really important that we create a world in which we're not in competition with each other for all the political spaces and scarce resources and that we're not sowing division through colorism and through um, uh, competitions of identity and who has the most difficult time and so on. I think these are the things that um, the people in power have been using as tools to discredit us and to sh sow division so that, you know, they're saying, well, you know, um, mixed race is just a diversion and identity politics doesn't mean anything. And, but actually, Yes, identity politics, if it's used in a negative way, can in fact be very um, undermining and um, ideologically problematic because you've got um, people pitted against each other. But I'm hoping the impact of my book will show that identity can, and, and finding our own identity, especially for people who are searching for it. And let's face it, there's loads of diaspora out there in every single country of the world. There are people being displaced, moving around, separated from their families through war, through uh, poverty, um, through uh, becoming refugees, through climate change. Everybody is, you know, there's so many millions of people displaced in the world. And I'm hoping that the book will help people to reach out to each other 
and understand each other better and also understand the power of stories. If you see the stories behind or hear the stories behind where people are and how, what motivates them, what makes them angry, if you, if you listen to those personal narratives, you, it starts to make sense. And I think we all need to listen to each other's stories and get that renewed respect. And I think particularly now we've got COVID on top of everything else, it's about saying that who we are matters and that it, it can be life affirming and empowering. And maybe human beings will find out who they are now that this enforced period of uh, isolation will help us to find out what's important in life. You know, we are now actually realizing that the people who save our lives, the people who care for us, the people who are the lowest paid, who grow the food, who distribute the food, they're the most important people in society. Nobody can do anything without them. And there's, you know, all this applause going on, is particularly in the West, for people who we didn't appreciate in the past. Well, I think we as feminists appreciated them because men, a large number of them are women. But I think the world is waking up to that. So I'm hoping that the impact of telling my story, even though it's a pre-COVID story, is sort of, you know, it's a chronicle for our times. It's, still, it's very, very much relevant to saying, what kind of world do we want to live in post-COVID, you know, post-patriarchal? Um, and taking those feminist values, I see them as feminist values, that the world is beginning to adopt really and putting caring at the center of it haven't we always said that you know that's what we've been fighting for so i'm a bit of an optimist really I, i'm uh even though uh you know i've got about uh 50 years of campaigning behind me now uh since i organized my first sit-in uh, when i was at school at secondary school i still feel a sense of optimism I think we still can change the world and I'm going to go on fighting till I die, honestly, for that. And I hope that will be some of the impact of my book. You did mention that you lived in Tanzania in the 70s. And I believe it's one of the things that you've documented in your book. Now, being a mixed race at that time, what was your experience? That was really interesting. I've got two chapters that which are dedicated to my experience in uh, Tanzania because um, I think we all go through turning points, transformatory experiences in our lives, which I think at the time we don't always realize they were transformatory. And it could be chance encounters like that little girl on the common um, or it could be um, something we observe or notice, which later on just comes back to us very powerfully. And I think my experience in Tanzania was full of those experiences. I was there from 1977 to 79. And that was a huge historical moment, really. Um, Tanzania, I met President Nyerere in person and talked to him about um, the role of women and the role of teachers. And hugely inspiring man. Um, so that, that was a, an encounter that was transformatory, I think. And um, I was also there when Tanzania um, invaded uh, Uganda uh, when Edi, and deposed Idi Amin, which was also a very important moment. Um, but very often, those political moments um, are very important for the world, 
and they give you some context. Also, I was there when Thatcher was um, uh, elected, the first female uh, president. Uh, uh, Prime Minister of, of the UK. So there was a lot going on at the time, but it's very often those very small moments that make the most impact on your life. And I just wanted to read you a bit from a chapter uh, called Debatable. And this was one set in Tanzania. And I was a teacher, a volunteer teacher in a school in Tanzania. And um, uh, in, near Irung Iringa, it was a technical school. And um, I was uh, the first black volunteer ever to be sent uh, on VSO, I think, or one of the first. And so people in the school didn't really know what to make of me. Uh, but uh, so there's lots about how I navigated that whole thing and my identity there. But there was one particular afternoon, a chance encounter that really transformed my life. I was on the way to the Shamba um, with my students. Um, we were going to, uh, it was during the growing season, so we were going to grow the school dinners, the maize and the beans uh, for the school kitchen. And so my students, being all young, fit boys and girls, raced on ahead of me with their djembes, and I was lagging behind and walking through the forest on my way to the shamba. And this is what I saw and the effect it had on me. In a clearing, I noticed a woman struggling with a huge log that she had felled with her axe. She had a tiny baby bundled up in a wrapper on her back, securely tied with a knot in, at the front. Two big bags of brushwood lie on the ground at her feet. I call out a greeting and ask if she needs help. She nods. Ndio, asante mama. Yes, thank you. The two of us grapple with the giant log, struggling to hoist it on her head. It must be nearly 10 inches in diameter and as tall as me. She has a length of cloth twisted into a circle around her head to prevent the load from slipping. Her knees buckle slightly and her face screws up with effort and pain under the weight of it. She steadies herself, then sets off down the path at a trot tree on her head, axe at her waist, baby on her back, two bags of brushwood in either hand, the muscles of her calves straining as her tiny frame almost disappears under her impossible load. A Tanzanian man calls out, Jambo, Mama, pleasantly in greeting as he cycles slowly past her. I sit on a tree stump, head in my hands, not quite believing what I have just seen. One of my students, Juma, always late, comes up to console me. Pole sana, very sorry, Mwalimu. Are you tired? Yes, I am tired. Of seeing injustice and inequality and unfairness, sheer grinding poverty, women treated like pack horses and second-class citizens, and being powerless to change it and even finding myself unwittingly aiding and abetting it by trying to help. Nobody talks about this, here or at home. It's just seen as women's unpaid role to fetch the firework and the water and have the babies. It's not even counted as work. Women are strong, they say. They're used to it. But they are lifting the kind of loads no human being, or even animal smaller than an elephant, 
should be required to lift, putting such strain on the spine, the limbs, the skull, and so recently after having given birth. When I get home, I'm going to get an international campaign going about this. We have to do something. It's a scandal. As she disappears along the path, I realise I've forgotten to ask her name. Thanks, Esra. I think... Um... I've heard you read that passage before recently at your um, book launch, which had to happen online because of COVID-19. And um, what, what came across very powerfully then was the extent to which that experience has motivated you in some of your activism since the late 70s. Um, and, uh, and your work in the international development space, which is how you and I met but as you start this new um, career, I'm going to call it a new career as a writer. Oh, that sounds exciting. <laughs> Just what, what it's been like launching a book in the context of a pandemic. <laughs> Well, it's funny. I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, uh, new career as a writer. This book took me so long to write. I'm thinking it's, <laughs> it's really like having a baby. It's very painful. And if someone says, do you want another one straight afterwards? You say, oh my goodness, I don't know. It's very, uh, <laughs> it's, it's very, um, you put your whole life into it like I do everything really I suppose um, but you do put your whole life into into a book and um, I'm feeling that uh, I would like to be um, I would not like to be just a, a, a writer that that sounds dismissive doesn't it just a writer what I mean is I would like to be a writer who uses my work as a tool and an impetus for uh, strengthening my activism. That's what I, what I would like to do. And that's my motivation for having written it, um, not just because I wanted to write a book and tell my story, but also because I wanted to say something that I hope will be acted upon. And that's the true activist in me, not, uh, rather than just the writer. So it's very exciting to be suddenly pivoted into this new career and to be, what I love about it is just, this is wonderful that I am not, not writing just as um, a, a single writer who's got their book published, but I'm one of 20. I love being part of a collective and to be one of 20 uh, writers who are novelists and uh, poets and fiction writers and um, memoirists like myself, there are 20 of us. We're calling ourselves the 20 in 2020 Jacaranda's campaign to get voices of color out there. So it's just terrific that even within my public, you know, the publishing world, we're a part of a collective and we support each other and speak for each other, with each other and uh, support each other through this difficult period of COVID. And I think that's one of the things that has been really sustaining for me, that um, 20 and 20, 2020 was going to be our year. Us 20 are, uh, uh, writers were going to um, unleash ourselves upon the world. And it was going to be a really exciting year when we were going to do all the festivals and uh, all, take the world by storm with all our, um, all our words. 
And so, of course, the first thing we felt when COVID happened was disappointment, this profound sense that, oh, we were looking forward to this year more than anything. And now we've got something in which the world has just shut down. But the wonderful thing was that we had each other and we immediately sort of formed a WhatsApp group, used technology to support each other, discuss what we were going to do, how we were going to be. Uh, only two of us had been published and managed to get our uh, books on Audible. Um, so I re read my own book on Audible just before they shut the Audible studio. So I counted myself very fortunate as being already at least having a physical book but the others are still being published under lockdown so we're supporting each other trying to and the and the publisher jacaranda small team we're working together the wonderful thing is we see ourselves as one whole team the publishers and the writers which is i think very unusual so it's about being part of that collective fantastic so that was one thing but also i think the other thing is learning to see uh, the virtual um, realm as uh, a comfort zone, which it isn't for me and I'm sure for many other people, especially for my generation that have not been brought up uh, with it. It can be a bit difficult to navigate yourself uh, your way around. But of course, that's part of the intergenerational dialogue. We've got young writers, middle-aged writers, older writers, women, men, um, and uh, all sorts of people who are part of this collective. So we're all helping each other. So what I did was um, last week, um, I decided I wanted to have a, um, a launch with a difference. And it was friends and family from all over the world, plus all my colleagues, all the activists, all the um, groups that I belong to, like the Healing Solidarity, um, Phenomenal Women. One of the most and, delightful uh, things that uh, I discovered when I was planning I my online launch for my, for my book like was society, discovering the talents of the my own family. I'm in lockdown with my partner along. and my son I also had and his my girlfriend and my, and my daughter. There, and, my sister, and they were the most amazing professional team. They really helped me to get the event together. My son is a compere and my partner is doing all that technical stuff you know with the computer in my, in my and sitting room. the zoom meeting and, there was still and room on the sofa. and my daughter was handling all the social media and uh, letting people into the room you know at the zoom meeting and all, all that kind of thing and my son's girlfriend was looking after us all and I think when you do a meeting face to face you kind of take it for granted you rely on professionals for all that stuff but at home, you really discover the talents of your own family and see them in a new way. They were an amazing team. So it was really exciting um, to, to feel you could have an at home. So we made it a very intimate space. And a school friend of my daughter's, um, who is now in her late 20s, she sang us some wonderful inspirational feminist songs um, uh, by Aretha Franklin and Shaka Khan and wonderful. And so she, she, we had a musical interlude. We had um, a wonderful cake with my, uh, the, my, my book, the, uh, the cover page of my book on the front of it. We had um, a little film clip of my um, uh, village where the chief, who is actually the first 
female chief of the central region in Ghana. She's the first one in the history of the Fanti uh, to have been selected as chief. So we're an all-female team over there. So I'm, I'm the queen mother and she is the chief. And she poured a libation to begin the whole um, launch off. And it was about bringing all of the parts of myself and my identity together and having our village brought into this virtual Zoom launch of all the other people that were there and they could see what was going on in the village and there was a cockerel crowing all the way through it. Let me interrupt you just for a minute because I want to help the people listening because I know why you've got a village in Ghana yeah. <laughs> and what, what it means to be the Queen Mother. But I think people listening and the adults, they might not. Just tell us about your village. Okay. Well, I should explain that um, in the book, I hope I'm not giving too many spoilers away for this book. <laughs> but a anyway, little, give a little teaser. <laughs> a little teaser. I'll tell you about the fact that um, uh, towards the end of the book um, is about my experience after a long, long search of finding my heritage in Ghana. And that search uh, led me to a whole discovery of my, um, my dad's village where he was chief. And um, then when he died, I was able to continue my work with the village and form a new relationship with them uh, in my own right. And then they invited me to become the queen of development there. And also, uh, very lately, in the last year or so, the um, chief uh, died, uh, who, uh, who was the, the village chief. And um, then uh, they, they actually elected a female chief uh, to succeed him. And she is the first chief that has ever been elected um, as, a, as a chief of the Fanti. So we, I'm so proud of, um, of her because she's been my support. Every, every chief or queen mother will have a, a village, Ochiami they call them, a support person who will speak on their behalf and who, who is a trusted, trusted friend. And so uh, Faustina was my trusted friend and now she's got promotion as, as the chief as well. So the two of us make this fantastic all-female team and she runs the school. She's also a trained teacher and she is in charge of all of the uh, village development projects. So she's a wonderful woman and very inspiring. And she's also a local politician. So she's an elected uh, representative too in Cape Coast. So I've found a whole tradition of women's leadership. I'm so lucky that I have just, you know, been able to participate in this traditional women's leadership at this level in my village and I just feel so blessed to have been able to have that opportunity because it's opened my eyes to a whole new um, level of, of, of women's leadership in my work and in my uh, in my mission in life I think. Thank you for clarification. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I was like, no, okay, so how can I how can I get myself a village? If that's <laughs> Amazing work indeed. So for people who are interested, I'm interested as well. So should I want to get 
where can I get it? There are physical copies that I've managed to get, my publisher managed to get it printed just before uh, the COVID, I think it was uh, printed in Mar- on March the 5th. So really before, just before COVID struck in this country. So um, you can buy a physical copy if you're living in the UK or, and Europe, because Jacaranda actually uh, distributes uh, to Europe as well. So you should go, um, I'm sure that Maryam will provide the link where you can go on and, and order a copy. But if you are not in uh, Europe and you would still like to have a copy, then it, I actually read it myself for the audible version. So you can hear my voice <laughs> reading the entire book, which took a long time. Um, but I, I really, really enjoyed it. And doing all the accents and all the uh, uh, voices and myself as a teenager and myself as a child. And it was really quite an amazing experience uh, to do it. So you can listen to me reading you a bedtime story. Um, or you can um, get it on Kindle as well. Um, so it should be possible to get hold of a copy and read it if you would like to read on. Um, so we will definitely put all the details of where you can find the book into the show notes for people to find. And I think one thing we wanted to ask you, because we know that uh, in the context of COVID-19, launching a book is, has, its, has its challenges, although, you know, the innovation of the virtual launch that you shared with us was brilliant. <laughs> but we're wondering, like, how people can help you to, you know, share the book more widely. Um, what would you oh, like? Oh, that, that is so kind of you. Um, well, I guess uh, one of the things uh, to do is um, maybe if you read it, you could... Um, pass it on to others and tell others about it uh, because I think word of mouth is the most important thing that people will uh, whatsapp each other or message each other on um, Instagram or Facebook and recommend it and there's a lot of that going on at the moment that for the first time one of the plus points of COVID is that those of us who are fortunate enough to have a home and to uh, have somewhere to be in lockdown, have plenty of time to read and to slow down and to uh, savour and talk about books. So I think there's a lot of recommendations for reading going online. So if I would be really honoured if um, you could recommend my book online. And the other thing is there are a lot of virtual book clubs going on as well so that you could get a group of people to read it together. And I think that's very, uh, a very good thing to do because you build up your solidarity and um, collective spirit if you read a book together um, and, and then talk about it. And I'm hoping that that will help people to get even more out of the book by having a group discussion, because it's quite interesting talking to people because they pick up different things. And honestly, I'm learning so much about this book by people writing to me and finding things in it that I've either forgotten were there or didn't even know were there, that people are actually telling me that um, and making connections that I kind of missed, even though I wrote it. So I think that dialogue and uh, bringing those uh, voices forward and sharing your thoughts is really, really great. And maybe um, doing some online action as a result of that, 
um, connecting with your community, connecting with other groups that maybe you don't know much about and reading more about them and finding out about them and talking to people. So all of that is possible through the magic of technology. Um, and I hope you'll see this book as like, um, I don't want to say a tool because it, that sounds a bit impersonal, but as a, as a resource, a personal resource, which will lead you to new places and new connections. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a beautiful book, but it's also an inspiring book. And um, I really recommend it to anyone who's listening as well. So I wanted to say that. And I, I, I will also be recommending it to lots of people that I know, whether they're listening or not. So, oh, Marianne, thank you so much uh, for that. And also, of course, the uh, great thing is to, um, if you're buying it from um, uh, on Kindle or Audible to, or, or even Amazon, write a review. Yeah, um, right. yeah. But we should also be supporting our independent uh, publishers. Um, so I would like you, if you can, buy it from Jacaranda as well, because a lot of independent publishers are actually finding it a big struggle because they rely on bookshop sales, people browsing, they rely on um, going to uh, festivals, all of which is no longer possible. So there's a my my publisher is joining with many other uh, small publishers. Uh, and a crowdfunding exercise to try to um, help the small publishers to survive. And I'm sure that's the same in every country, that small businesses are really under threat and struggling at the moment. So we have to shop local and, you know, support our community uh, booksellers as well. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I believe you can actually buy from a, from a um, Jacaranda or, or another local bookseller and then actually leave a review on Amazon. I'm not sure, but I believe that might be possible. I'm going to give oh, it a try. <laughs> great. Let's do that if we can. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your support and for the chance to talk to people on this podcast because I think it's really a, that sense of connection that is beautiful it's just sustained me all my life and I'm sure it sustains all of us activists all over the world to connect with each other through our stories fantastic absolutely and to our listeners who would like to get in you know in touch with you and ask more questions um, where can they find you online all right yes I've got um, a new website which is again uh, Mary Ann can um, give you the link www.eswanswagoldsmith.com and the uh, on the last page there there's um, a contact page where you can write me a message and I it will be pinged straight to my email and I can get it and respond thanks so much Ezra um, it's been brilliant talking to you today and uh and, uh, and I wish you all the best with sharing the book in the world. Thank you. And whatever um, everyone is doing in this um, time of COVID, I hope you stay safe and well. And also that if you have the space to be creative, I wish you all the very best and make the most of this time because actually it's very, very precious in many ways. And our theme tune over and over was written and performed by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com. <laughs>